Good morning. How are we doing today? Everybody get a little extra sleep last night? I'm old enough now that I do not sleep in. I woke up early. Got to watch a little football game that was on replay, so that was all right. All right, well, we've made it halfway through. Uh, We've actually broke the chapter four barrier in Ephesians. So go ahead and flip there if you have a second. If you have your Bibles, I should say. Ephesians chapter four, it's page 12443 in the Blue Bible, if if you're using one of those. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Father, you're good to us. We can't help but live our lives for you because we're so grateful for the salvation you've given us in Christ. Help us today to just come to grips with a little bit more of your word. Help us to change how we think change how we feel, and change how we behave. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I I really work hard at not using a lot of sports metaphors, but you kind of have to forgive me because I am a coach. So um, if if there's one thing that I'm really, really convinced of is that sports... Uh, and coaching in particular, is, is the greatest lab for leadership. Um, so one of the things that, I don't, I don't know, how many people have actually watched some high school or college volleyball before? Raise your hand for it. So some of you will get this. So one of the things that, as volleyball coaches, I get teased about a lot, actually, from people who watch volleyball, aren't necessarily fans, is they, they why does, after every play, does your team come to the center kind of huddle up, hug, and talk to each other. And it feels like they're just encouraging that last mistake that was made. And, and they, they kind of feel like, so as you can imagine, football coaches are the ones that tease me the most because they're like, all oh, these, like, you guys huddle, but that's to give a play. And I'm like, oh, I can't get that. So, but what's really interesting about that huddle is as a coach, it's a, kind of a window into the relationships on the team. So I pay close attention to what's going on when they come into that huddle. Because I can tell how unified a team is by how they interact with each other in that huddle. If I have a player that's mad at another player, they don't make eye contact. They sometimes won't even want to come into the huddle. And, and so as a coach in a leadership position, that gives me an opportunity to go, oh, there's a relationship here that I need to, or there's an attitude that I need to challenge. Or there's something I've got to do to help. Because here's the thing with particularly women's sports, and women's coaches will tell you this as well. Women who coach will tell you this as well. Is guys, we can play and not like the the teammate. But on a girls team, on a women's team, if you don't like your teammate, you will not play well. Absolutely true. And so as a coach of a women's team, I pay really close attention to how that team interacts in that little huddle because I can tell how unified my team is. And what's really, really ironic about looking back at my career, 
as a coach is some of the most talented teams and the most skilled teams I've had have underachieved because they failed to unify. Did you catch that? Some of the most talented and, and physically, both physically and skill-wise, talented teams I've had failed to reach their potential because they can't unify. And I think that's true in almost any kind of a relational context or a group context. At work, if there's dissension, you don't get the work done that you need to the way you could. Right? When you're in a family and you have stuff to accomplish, it doesn't work well if there's a lot of conflict in that family. So unity is something worth fighting for. And what we're going to find today in, in chapter 4 of, of, of Ephesians is that God's, God's going to call us to commit to, to unity. Now, I'm not ready to hit that yet. I want to talk about the transition first. So what we're going to do is look at chapter 4, verse 1, because chapter 4, verse 1 is kind of like the teeter-totter hinge for the whole book. So the first three chapters, whoops, for you guys, that's over here, right? The first three chapters have been talking a lot about the nature of salvation, the nature of the church. The nature of the church is this one body that takes two very, very disparate groups of people, brings them together as one unified new body. And then the second half is going to do what some people would call apply that. Okay. Now, I'm going to share a little pet peeve I have with you. It's, it, when I was younger, it was a pet peeve. Now it's just a mild annoyance. But, but I think hopefully you'll catch something important as I share this. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, look at what it says. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So this word, the second word in that sentence, I, therefore, tells you that this is a hinge. It's a logical conclusion word. Based on everything that I've said before, now I'm going to tell you, because of all this stuff that I've told you before, now, therefore, walk worthy of the calling. Live up to that. Now, what, that's not a pet peeve. That's a good thing. But what I find is a little bit uh, perturbing, annoying, however you want to say it. It's more mild now. Is that some people say the first half of the book is all theology and the second half is all application. Now, as soon as you say that, some people are going to, ooh, the first half of the book is better. And then other people are like, oh, that theology stuff. No, the second half of the book is better. Guess what? That's kind of a helpful way of thinking about it, but it's really not that true. How much application have we gotten out of the first three chapters of the book? A lot, right? So, yes, it's a little bit more theological. And yes, the second half of the book is a little more applicational. But how do you get to the application without the theology that backs it up? So I, I want us to appreciate all of the book of Ephesians. And if you tend, and, and I think it's kind of a personality thing. Some of us are more like, ooh, I'm an Ephesians 1 through 3 kind of person, personality-wise. And then on the other side, maybe some people are more like, ooh, I like the application stuff a little bit better. Can we all meet in the middle? Okay, because I think there's kind of three levels of application that we can get in the Bible. There's three levels of application. One is commands. And those are the most obvious things. Right, The most obvious, simple statements of scripture, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. That's an extremely important level of application. And it's very, very simple. I do or I don't. Right Now, then right below that and deeper are principles. So let me give you two examples from Proverbs. Proverbs, there's one Proverbs that says, answer a fool according to his folly. 
You know what the next proverb says right next to it? Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which is it? That's where wisdom lies, right? The knowing which principle to apply then, uh, in what situation. So there's a deeper level of application that's beyond commands, that's principle level. And that's the stuff that we tend to struggle with. Do I do this? Do I make this choice? Where do I go to college? What do I choose for a career? There's a lot of principles that affect those things, but it's a deeper level of application because it's more core to who we are and it takes a lot more thought. And then I would suggest that there's an even deeper level of application and I would call that something to the effect of worldview. So in other words, when, when, if I want to take, well, so I taught at a Bible college. And our goal wasn't just to get kids to behave a certain way. We wanted them to think a certain way. And one of the ways we said it at our school was, we want you to think biblically. We want you to have a Christian worldview so that whatever situation you find yourself in, you have a way of processing that decision or that life setting or that situation that you're in so you could analyze it from a big, big worldview perspective. And so my pet peeve coming back to that is let's take all three of those levels of application and let's embrace them all. As believers, yes, we have a personality. Personality me, I tend to be more theologically minded and I get the commands and that stuff. The end of the book is not as much fun for me. But I have to realize that's a weakness if I'm not willing to embrace the command side and the more principle side of the book like Ephesians. So I've got to take Ephesians 4 through 6 with just as much vim and vigor as I did Ephesians 1 through 3. And for some of you who tend to go, oh, that theology stuff, I don't like that. Meet me in the middle. Meet me in the middle. Because what the first three books of the Uh, excuse me, the first three chapters of the book do is that gets you down to the worldview level. And it's going to change you at a deeper, more lifelong sustaining way than it would just by listening to certain commands or hearing certain situational commands. So why do I say that? Because as you grow as a believer, we've got to get past just the commands. We've got to get to the principles and we've got to get to the worldview stuff. And that's where God's really going to change our lives. It's going to completely change us from the inside out. And God has made us in such a way that if we don't change people's mindset and don't give them a biblical worldview, eventually they'll bail. If all you do is give your kids commands, if all you do, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, eventually they're going to ask one really big question that they ask all the time. Why? Why should I do that? And that's what worldview gives to us. So we're getting out of kind of the worldview building side of the book more into the applicational side of the book. And the way he does that is with this transition sentence. So he says basically in verses chapters 1 through 3, I want you to understand your salvation and the fact that I placed you into this body called the church. Now, because of that, because you have this great privilege, he says 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So if you're a believer here today, you've been called into this thing called the church. And because it's such a great privilege, he says it's not just about being a part of the church, 
We have all sorts of things, chapters four through six, to tell you about what it means to walk worthy. So anything we talk about from here and the rest of the book is about how do I walk worthy of the, save, of the salvation that God's given to me. Now, it kind of fits the book that the first thing he would touch is unity. The first thing he would touch is unity. So let's see what he says here. Let's read down through the text. We'll read verses two through five. Excuse me, two through six. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there we have it. The first thing he says right off the bat after saying walk worthy of the call is to fight for unity. So God calls us as a church to be unified. Let me just be really honest with you. I, I really, my biggest fear today is that somehow I will communicate in a way that I experience sometimes when people call me to unity in a, in a job or in a ministry. Sometimes we can use the term unity as a club to try to get people to submit. Mindless obedience. That's not what, that's not what I'm doing today. You'll see more of what I mean as I talk. So I want to do three things with you today. I want to first, I want to talk about what unity is and what it isn't. Then I want to say that we are called to oneness. That's another way of saying unity. We're called to oneness. And then I'm going to look at the fact that we have a lot of ones to unify under. We have a lot of ones to unify under. So let's talk about what unity is. But first, let's talk about what it isn't. There, there are lots of ways of trying to define oneness or unity. Well, so let me just give you some stuff it's not. It's not fighting. It's not partiality. It's not treating people differently because of who they are, right? Partiality. It's not separation. It's not dissension. It's not opposition. It's not antagonism. But it's also not a zombie-like obedience or a cult-like following. Because that's false unity. If, if you are unified, but all you do is mindlessly follow somebody, you're in a cult. You're in a cult. So biblical unity is not mindless, cult-like obedience. Rather, it is this. And this is a description, not a definition. Unity is a sense of oneness that comes from that comes about, excuse me, when a group of Christians humbly and lovingly believe in the same core doctrines and commit to the same mutual to excuse me, commit to mutual God-honoring goals. Did you catch that? Unity is a sense of oneness that comes about when a group of Christians humbly and lovingly believe in the same core doctrines and commit to mutual God-honoring goals. Now, that was kind of deductive. I told you ahead of time what I think it is. Now let's see if I can demonstrate that from the text. So, the text this morning, Paul calls us to commit to oneness. So, 
In verse 2 he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now I don't want to go into the grammatical details here, but the main point of that sentence, although it's a little bit, feels like from an English perspective garbled, the main point there is holding fast to the unity. That's the central thing of that verse. We want to hold to the unity. Now, the word unity there in the Greek is the word literally oneness, oneness. So we all get a kind of a sense of what oneness means, but we don't all necessarily, uh, aren't necessarily able to put like a textbook definition to oneness. We know what it feels like. We know what it seems like, and we know when it's not there, but oneness is really hard to define. And so therefore I gave you that definition but look look what he says in how to achieve that if nothing else we need to put up with people if nothing else we need to be able to just put up with people what do i mean by that well verse two with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love now the term there for bearing one another is an interesting word because it's very very close to our english word put up with so I actually chose to use that word. So, but in English, as in the Greek, to put up with can be kind of a really negative connotation. And it can have a very positive connotation. Right? So at one level, this could mean, and I don't think it means this, but it could mean, look, you guys can't get along, just put up with each other. Parents, do you ever say that to your children? We're in a long ride. If nothing else, could you just not talk to each other and just tolerate each other? We've all done that. But is that really unity? Right? So I think the word is actually here has more of the positive connotation of lovingly putting up with people even when we don't necessarily connect. Right? Now, I'm not going to make you raise your hands because everybody would do it. But do you have anybody in the world you're annoyed at or you get annoyed at regularly? (laughs) Some people raise their hand. (laughs) People are really nice to me around here, really. I mean, seeing that sincerely. But I know that some of you, I probably, I just annoy you. And I don't mean to, and I'm sorry. Right? But guess what? If that's true for you, if you're, guess what? That's true for you too. And certain personality types, right? Some of you are introverted, some of you are extroverted. Some people don't like really loud and laugh, loud laughter. And some of you would prefer a company of people like that. And we all have different personalities. And we all have maybe even different tastes. And maybe even different preferences. And yet God calls us to put up with one another. But he says it with this. With all humility. Ah, doggone it. Wish he didn't say that. Right? Humility here has more the connotation not of, right, not being proud, but rather being able to put some people above yourself. Putting other people above yourself. I have to be able to put other people above myself. You have to put other people above yourself. We have to put other people above ourselves. And that's what God calls us to do. He also 
so says gentleness. I'm a coach, I just want to yell, right? And yet God calls us to be gentle. I wish I did that a lot better. We'll just leave it at that. How about you? You wish you did it better or you do it all right? Patience, the ability to tolerate a lot that would make you angry, right? The capacity to deal with a lot of what would make us angry. I'm sure I've tried many of your patience. Again, I don't try to do these things. There's so many stories I could tell of my children, but I won't. There's so many things that my parents could tell about me, (laughs) but I won't. So he says this, fight for oneness. Fight for oneness. Not this artificial zombie-like obedience to something some leader says somewhere, but a true unity, a true unity that is able to put up with people despite our differences. And folks, if the people in Ephesus could do it, we can do it. Remember the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles? What a crazy thought that people from such different backgrounds could actually come together and mutually work towards the same goals. Could get along socially, let alone in church. Look what else he says in verse three. He says, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So there's an eagerness that we need to show in pursuing unity. There's an eagerness that we need to show. So there are times when I begrudgingly seek unity. But that's not enough. God calls us to be eager to that, to lean into that. That needs to be our default position. We're going to fight for unity. We're going to fight for unity. Now what's really interesting is there's the unity is in the spirit. Right? So there's... There's a supernatural help we have because God's spirit resides in us and it binds us as believers. I find it really interesting that Paul would use the term the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. Remember where Paul is when he's writing this? He's in chains, right? That the term bonds That's what that means. So I want you to kind of imagine, okay, that every single person here is chained together and connected. And that's the spirit. We have the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So this bond that we have is a bond that's supposed to be of peace and we can do it because we have the spirit of God in our lives. If you're a believer, the spirit of God dwells in you and that gives you the capacity and the impulse towards unity. And we need to take advantage of the fact and think about the fact that if I'm fighting with a brother in Christ, I'm fighting with another person that's chained to me with this bond called peace and we both have the spirit and we've got to be able to work this thing out. We've got to be able to work this thing out. 
And sometimes it literally is, hey, we'll agree to disagree, but because we believe in some big things together, we can continue to work together and row in the same direction. One of the things that's kind of different about our church is even though we're part of a denomination and we're part of a denomination that purposely is trying to minimize minimal differences and major on major things. Correct? We major on the major and we minor on the minors. That's what we try to do. Right? So biblically, there's this core set of doctrines that we believe are extremely, extremely important. Salvation by grace through faith, important. Amen? Yeah, that's important. We're not going to sacrifice on that one. Okay, mode of baptism, as important as salvation? Not so much. Can we agree to disagree and work together still? We've attempted to do that, and we seem to be doing okay. So we try to major on the majors, and we try to minor on the minors, and we try to continue to work together towards a common goal of reaching Midland for Jesus Christ, glorifying God by being a witness to him here and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Any reason for conflict in your life? We live in a fallen world, of course. Choices need to be made. Decisions need to be made. Carpet color has to be chosen. You get the idea. So first, we're supposed to commit to oneness. Oneness will come about as we work towards a common goal and then work to show love towards one another as we find these little differences that we have and we learn to tolerate in a good sense, right? Tolerate each other in a good sense and do that with love and then that oneness is a product of that. We need to do it. If nothing else, you just need to be able to put up with somebody in a loving way and then you need to be eager to do that. We need to be eager to do that. Knowing that, just imagine this whole room full of people connected by chains. That's the bond we have. That's the bond we have. So he says, commit to oneness. The next thing he says, and there's, I think it's actually a play on words here, and I'll, I'll bring that out even into next week because it continues on through this passage. But he, he actually is saying, commit to oneness, and then he's gonna use the word one a lot in the next few verses. What do I mean? Just listen to all the ones. Verse four, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So folks, we have a lot of ones to agree about. Just think of all the stuff, all the majors that we agree about and that gives us the capacity then to not worry about the minors and continue to work together towards a goal. There's one body. That's the thing he's been talking about in chapters one through three. The body of Christ, the, for us, the local body where God has placed us, given us gifts to use to help each other grow in Christ and to, in doing so as we grow in our unity, then we reach the world around us for Jesus. One spirit. We talked about that a little bit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed you, you travel somewhere and you meet somebody who's a Christian 
A lot of times you kind of figure it out before even asking them, right? You're traveling somewhere, maybe you're sitting on an airplane and you just spike, strike up a conversation and the next thing you're going, I think this guy's a believer. Hey, do you go to church anywhere? Hey, do you know Jesus? And there's this immediate bond that you have with that person because we have this thing called unity of the spirit. We share the same spirit. We have the same Lord. We have the same father that gives us this ability to relate. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So there is this one hope we have and that is this eternity with Christ. It's not this I hope it happens kind of hope. It's a promise that it's going to happen and we're eagerly anticipating the day when we will spend eternity with our Savior. One hope. One Lord. Reference to Jesus himself. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One faith. We have this one core set of doctrines that we believe in that's taught in the scriptures. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's a lot of stuff that we have that we can unite around. So if you're tempted to focus on differences, reel it back in and think about all the ones that you have in common with that other person that maybe you're struggling with. And I love how it ends on the father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our triune God mentioned there, father, son, spirit. Love it. So we've got a lot of reasons and a lot of ones to commit to. We've got a lot of ones that we can commit to. All right, so let's, let's bring this home. Let's bring this home. One, let's commit to unity. Let's commit to unity. And I, I really was trying to figure out if I wanted to mention two first or one first, but for some of us, it might actually mean evaluate to see if you can commit. Because unity is a commitment, right? If we're going to accomplish unity here, it's going to become because of a commitment. Maybe you need to evaluate to see if you can commit. I don't know anybody who wants to drive anybody away from church. Nobody wants to do that. But if you're here and you just don't fit in the sense of you don't believe in our doctrines and you don't believe in what we're doing here, maybe there's another church that would fit where you can actually serve Christ better. Finance people are going to kill me right now for saying that. No. And I, God doesn't need our money, right? But truth of the matter is, if, if this church isn't the right church for you, that's okay. God has a church that fits you where you can serve and you can fully commit to unity. And again, we don't want anybody to leave. But the truth is, unity is artificial if it's not a commit because of mutual beliefs. Stop disunifying behaviors. Stop disunifying behaviors. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Man, that is so convicting to me. Because it's so easy, isn't it? 
It's so easy to be negative. And he does use the word unwholesome word here, but contextually, I don't think it's talking about dirty language. I think the unwholesome here is referring to the fact that it's not good for building up the body. So you could use the cleanest language. You can still tear down the body. I can use the cleanest language and still tear down the body. What I have to be careful for and what I have to really, really be careful for is to not do anything that is not towards building up that ends up tearing down. Let's be honest. There's a couple categories of language that it's just really fun to participate in because you feel really powerful if you have a little bit of gossip that you can share with somebody. Ooh, I know somebody. Good for edification. There's all sorts of other, right, speech categories that we could talk about. I think we all know them. I'm not going to belabor them. But instead, practice unifying behaviors. Let's practice unifying behaviors. One simple one is connect with people you don't know. Okay, Pastor Chuck, give me the name of that lunch challenge because I always forget it. The Engage Lunch Challenge, right? That's a great thing for developing unity. Going out, sharing a meal with someone that you don't know that well. So connect with someone you don't know. Go out for coffee, right? Join a life group. Do something to help connect yourself with others. All right, and these are no particular order. These are shotgun. Another one, try to understand fully before reacting. The older I get, the more I appreciate just shutting my mouth and hearing. Because I, the younger I was, it seemed the more I just wanted to, I was just waiting for someone to finish so I could talk, right? And the old adage about walking in someone else's shoes is valid. Try to fully understand before reacting. Try to understand a person's perspective before reacting. Another one. When you want to separate, engage. When you want to separate, engage. So I told you earlier about how the volleyball team comes together in the middle every time, right? And we tell our team this. When you don't want to slap a high five with that other player, or if you don't want to make eye contact with them, that's when you need to do it. That's when you need to do it, and maybe even you need to say something like, hey, that was my bad, I'll take care of it this time. But when you feel the impulse to separate from another church member, maybe it's time to engage and go, hey, let's work this out. Maybe even get some mediation if you need. When you want to separate, engage. I almost put this one first, but I ended up not. Pray for those you struggle with. It's really hard to be mad at people you're praying for. Right? It's really hard to be mad at people you're praying for. And then this last one I just mentioned, engage your church staff, your leaders. You know, one of my biggest fears, because I've, I've had it done before where some employer um, boss comes in and goes, we need to unify. And that means getting behind my idea and doing it my way. And 
right? And it becomes a club, right? Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. He didn't say beat my sheep, right? And as leaders, and I'm saying this very sincerely, we covet your feedback, okay? If anybody walks out of here thinking that somehow I'm trying to cudgel this group of people into submission somehow so that you'll follow the elders, please, you've completely misread me today. I think I can honestly say from from my perspective, every single one of us elders or not a single one of us elders wants to rule this church as if we're we're an aristocracy or an oligarchy. We don't. We don't. Can we make mistakes? Yes. Can we miscommunicate? Yes. Can we fail? Absolutely. But we want your feedback and we want to be able to be unified with you. One great example, and it happened actually before, before I came onto the board and I, we kind of dealt with it on the board after I got on, but um, there was a small, very small policy issue that got voted down by the congregation, Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing because we understood that we needed to either lead more, communicate better, or not go that direction, right? But it was handled properly, and it wasn't me. It was the guys that were in there before me, but they said, okay, so if we're going to do this, we we don't feel like we communicated well, so we got to communicate better with you as a church. And then if you still say no, then it's going to be a no, but we're going to do our best to communicate better with you folks. And then guess what? We communicated. We had like six different meetings. <laughs> Some of you know what issue I'm talking about. It's just a really minor issue. And it was passed because your questions were answered. So what I'm not saying is that there's this kind of a zombie like the congregation follows the leader. That's not what we want. We want to be on the same page together. We want to be pursuing our relationship with Jesus so that we can serve him well because we're all pulling in the same direction. And that's glorifying God by reaching our community for Jesus Christ. So what is unity? Unity is a sense of oneness that comes about when a group of Christians humbly and lovingly believe in the same core doctrines and commit to mutual God-honoring goals. Here's, here's what's so cool about when we can do that. Listen to what Jesus says in a prayer to the Father in John 17, 21. He says, I pray in a previous verse, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see? So you want to reach this world for Jesus Christ? Be unified as a church. Let's do it. Let's do it together. Let's row in the same direction. Let's pray. Again, Father, you're so good to us. We just nothing. We deserve absolutely nothing of what you give us. And yet you pour it out to us graciously and mercifully. Lord, we do want to walk worthy of your call. And that means being unified. And I ask that you would help us do that. Help us to do the hard work of fixing or maintaining relationships. Help us to engage when we feel like disengaging. Help us to be humble. Help us to be loving. Help us to be patient. I pray in Jesus' name.